Lieutenant Jerry Cummings stood outside a closed conference room door inside a federal building in Washington, D.C. It was late 1951 or early 1952. He waited, alongside a few other intelligence officers, to meet with the Director of Air Force Intelligence, Major General Charles Cabell. Cummings fidgeted nervously. He had recently been appointed the head of Project Grudge, a classified UFO research program conducted by the United States Air Force. But he didn't know what to expect of Cabell. Cummings had concerns over how his predecessors ran the project and was about to present those issues to Cabell. If the director disagreed, Cummings could kiss his new position goodbye. An aide invited Cummings into the conference room where Cabell presided over a meeting with his staff. Upon Cummings' entrance, all conversation in the room stopped. Cabell looked at Cummings expectantly. This was his chance. Cummings didn't hold back. He expressed his frustrations about how the Project Grudge staff were unequivocally botching the job. He said that the program's most recent leader, James Rogers, treated all evidence, no matter the quality, as garbage. Instead of properly evaluating witness testimony, he simply looked for ways to discredit it. Cummings contended that the only real analysis Rogers ever conducted was to determine how he could better serve the Pentagon's agenda. The room fell silent as Cummings waited for his superior's judgment. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our third episode in a special four-part series on the United States military's once-classified research on UFOs. Each episode will examine a different, top-secret government project. Last time, we explored Project Grudge, the military's response to the extraterrestrial proposition raised by Project Sign. Directing their attention away from the stars, researchers searched for a connection between UFOs and Soviet plots to threaten the United States. This time, we'll discuss Project Blue Book, By early 1952, Project Grudge's new leader, Lieutenant Jerry Cummings, had blown the whistle on what he thought were inappropriate and irresponsible research practices. And his actions changed the course of UFO studies in America forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Lieutenant Jerry Cummings likely didn't plan to voice his opinions on Project Grudge quite so openly in front of his boss. The moments after his hypercritical comments were fraught with tension. Back in 1948, General Cabell ordered an intelligence report which ignored the possibilities of extraterrestrial life, and it eventually resulted in the closure of Project Sign. Cummings didn't know the extent to which Cabell personally supported the theory that extraterrestrial life forms may have created the UFOs. He only hoped his boss supported the scientific pursuit of the truth, without an agenda. As the silence stretched on, Cummings could see that Cabell was angry, furious even. The blood vessels in his neck pulsed. Cummings started to sweat. Finally, Cabell spoke. He bellowed in anger, demanding to know who'd been reporting that every UFO sighting was fully investigated. Before Cummings could stammer out an answer, Cabell launched into a full-blown tantrum. He yelled at the scientist, calling the report a poorly written, terribly researched load of bunk. Then, he slammed a giant stack of paper onto the conference room table. Cummings glanced at the cover. It was the latest Project Grudge report. Another member of Cummings' team stammered out a response, explaining that the report represented one of the biggest issues with the current approach. Instead of objectively looking at the data, Project Grudge had focused on simply categorizing each UFO sighting. Every witness statement was invalidated because it was considered either a misinterpretation of a common object due to some kind of psychological or neurological malfunction, or was a lie made up by some crackpot to perpetuate a hoax. Finally, Cabell revealed which side he was on. He dryly informed the visitors that he couldn't explain every single UFO sighting. That must make him a crackpot, too. Cummings breathed a sigh of relief as Cabell gave orders. Project Grudge needed a drastic overhaul, which started with a new code name, Project Blue Book. The Lieutenant Cummings played a critical role in launching Project Blue Book. Cabell appointed Captain Edward J. Ruppelt to head the team. Ruppelt was a former member of Project Sign, the first military research initiative that suggested some UFOs came from space. Project Blue Book carried on the same mission as Project Sign and Project Grudge, which was to gather and evaluate evidence to determine who or what created UFOs. Luckily, Blue Book finally had the support and freedom to follow information wherever it led. Under Ruppelt, the team redesigned previous UFO research methodology, but they kept some of Project Grudge's habits. They continued eliminating statements from witnesses that weren't considered credible. The office still had a file labeled Crackpot. A preliminary analyst sorted through incoming witness statements and eliminated any with obvious explanations. According to Ruppelt, 
Project Blue Book dismissed only about 60% as due to run-of-the-mill aerial phenomena, like weather balloons, airplanes, birds, or strange weather patterns. From there, Project Blue Book deviated completely from Project Grudge. The roughly 40% of statements that remained credible went to senior analysts and scientific consultants for review. When these experts came across what Ruppelt referred to as a good report, the team now had the resources and the drive to thoroughly investigate it. The other big pivot Ruppelt and the rest of his staff made from grudge operations was ending the willful misleading of the public. In April 1952, the Office of Public Information issued a memo stating that UFOs were not, quote, considered a joke or something which can be brushed off lightly as readily explainable, but rather it is considered to be something which warrants constant vigilance and thorough intelligence analysis, end quote. Not as flashy as the 1949 Project Grudge press release, in which the Department of Defense claimed they had evaluated and debunked every UFO claim they ever received. But it was a start. The Air Force wanted to win back public trust, and they wanted to hear about every UFO spotted. It worked. In the summer of 1952, UFO sightings peaked. The team began processing reports and working on the backlog that built up during Project Grudge's reign. By June 1952, the staff had perfected their new methods, and just in time. The country was about to get hit with the most widespread, nerve-wracking UFO visit in history. Throughout the summer, Ruppelt and his team noticed an abundance of UFO sightings were coming from the East Coast. Although the Pentagon was aware of the growing concentration, no one knew what to do. In Ruppelt's book about his experience, one anonymous Project Blue Book consultant even predicted that the accumulation of sightings foretold the granddaddy of all UFO sightings and said that it would probably occur in Washington or New York probably Washington. But there was nothing to do to stop one from happening. All anyone could do was wait. Between July 10th and July 16th, the area surrounding Washington, D.C. experienced an influx of UFO encounters. Multiple commercial airline crews reported seeing strange lights while flying. Ruppelt feared that his colleague's prediction was now coming true. He had no idea what the surge of sightings meant for the security of the nation's capital, but he was about to find out. At 11.40 p.m. on July 19, 1952, at Washington, D.C.'s National Airport, today called the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, all was quiet in the air traffic control tower until... Two different radar operators straightened in their seats. Their machines were picking up something alarming. Seven separate aircraft, unscheduled and unidentified, appeared on their radar screens. The operators quickly confirmed that these were not domestic airplanes. One air traffic controller later told the press, quote, they acted like a bunch of small kids out playing. 
it was helter-skelter, as if directed by some innate curiosity. End quote. The UFOs flew at a leisurely pace of 100 to 130 miles per hour, only to suddenly shoot into high gear and disappear from the radar field. Technicians then recorded one aircraft moving at an astonishing 7,000 miles per hour. In comparison, an average commercial plane flies at about 575 miles per hour. In their acceleration, one UFO even temporarily entered the controlled airspace over the White House and the Capitol building. The National Airport technicians checked in with radar operators at nearby Andrews Air Force Base. They confirmed they saw the ships too. While the technicians and operators were on the phone with each other, both airfields' radar then picked up a new target. They hastily compared its position, only to see it suddenly and simultaneously disappear from their screens. The National Tower checked in with airborne commercial flights nearby. Pilots provided visual confirmation. They saw lights that matched what ground technicians saw on radar. One pilot noted the lights looked like falling stars, but with no tails. Panicked, National Airport called the Air Force for help. Before the military could respond, a new target appeared on the airport's radar. It hovered just over the radio tower at Andrews Air Force Base. Hands shaking, a National Airport technician dialed the number for the military radar operator he'd spoken to earlier to report what he was now seeing on his screen. When the Andrews radar operator picked up, he confirmed that there was indeed a ship hovering by their radio tower. He could see it. He described it as a huge, fiery orange sphere floating outside his window. It's not clear from our research how long the unnatural light hung around the two airfields. But by the time Air Force jets arrived at National Airport, the UFOs had vanished. Incredibly, news of the sightings reached the press before they reached the intelligence community. Ruppelt himself had to find out from the papers. Project Blue Book jumped into action, processing a plethora of reports from pilots, air traffic control, and military sources. Journalists bore down on them for comment. Ruppelt tried to stall. He needed time for a proper investigation. But he wouldn't get it. Before the team could put together a comprehensive report, the UFOs struck again. Coming up, Project Blue Book moves into the national spotlight. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January, to commemorate this iconic milestone, dig into the dramas of a real-life American dynasty in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. Crime, history, mystery. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite ParCast hosts, including me, examining one of the world's most formidable families from all angles. 
Whether it's assassinations and conspiracies, corruption and cover-ups, international affairs, and extramarital ones, too, discover all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments, all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Project Blue Book formed in early 1952 and investigated UFOs with a renewed vigor. The team was just finding their footing when America suffered its most terrifying UFO event ever, widespread sightings near Washington, D.C. Captain Rubbled and the rest of Project Blue Book scrambled to interview witnesses and review data from the case. But before they could assemble their report, UFOs appeared again in the skies above National Airport. It was July 26th, a week since the huge fiery orange sphere had been seen alongside other UFOs. The night shift technicians in the air traffic control tower at National Airport still hadn't settled their nerves. But their blood pressure was about to shoot through the roof again. Several blips appeared on their radar screens. Unidentified aircraft were back in controlled airspace. The operators wasted no time. They called Andrews Air Force Base, only to find out their radar had picked up the aircraft too. They couldn't be sure, but based on the target's speed and erratic behavior, both parties believed these were the same UFOs spotted the previous week. Air traffic control at National Airport redirected all planes out of the area. The press, who had already gotten wind of this new sighting, reached out to Captain Ruppelt for comment. Ruppelt didn't expect to hear about a second substantial UFO sighting from Life magazine. When the reporter asked for the Air Force's plan of action, Ruppelt gave an annoyed response. He said, I have no idea what the Air Force is doing. In all probability, it's doing nothing. Ruppelt hung up the phone and immediately called intelligence in Washington. He had been right. The Pentagon hadn't yet heard word about the latest uproar in D.C. Ruppelt hastily dispatched several local military intelligence agents to the scene. This time, he wanted witnesses he could trust. When the officers arrived at the National Airport Control Tower, radar operators had been tracking four or five of the UFOs for almost an hour. It was time to call in the big guns, Air Force jets. Around midnight, two F-94 jets arrived at the airport with orders to intercept the UFOs. But almost as soon as they arrived, the UFOs disappeared from the radar screens. The technicians at the airport sighed. It was probably equal parts relief and disappointment. Perhaps they hoped that it would finally be the night when a pilot would get a good look at a UFO. But the show wasn't over yet. Soon after the UFO's sudden disappearance in DC, strange lights appeared near Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. It was as if the UFOs had traveled over 100 miles south in a matter of seconds. Down at the Langley Air Traffic Control Tower, the previously quiet night was now suddenly interrupted by one phone call after another. 
Frantic civilians reported unsettling bright lights in the skies. Before operators could even feel the calls, panicked shouts from inside their tower drew them to the windows. The technicians watched as huge, blindingly bright objects flew around outside, changing color as they moved. The technicians called for backup. An F-94 fighter jet stationed nearby took off, and its pilot immediately spotted the lights. As soon as he accelerated toward one, the bright spots disappeared. The pilot turned to his radar and saw an aircraft hovering where the light used to be. But seconds after he locked onto this target, it sped out of range and off his screen. The pilot kept searching. His radar picked up an aircraft two more times over the next couple of minutes, but it didn't stay in one place for more than a few seconds at a time. Several minutes went by with no sign of the lights. Nothing appeared on radar screens in the air or on the ground. The UFOs were gone from Langley. For the second time that night, a group of pilots and technicians felt the tension release from their bodies. But the aircraft didn't go home. They returned one last time to the National Airport in D.C. At the time, air traffic control at the National Airport had no idea about the UFO's excursion to Langley. They only knew that after mysteriously disappearing earlier, they were now back for an encore. In a frenzy, National Airport's traffic controller reached out again for support. Military F-94 jets responded with even more haste. This time, when they entered the airspace over National, the UFOs remained on their radars, and the bewildering, blinding lights on the UFOs stayed on. The jets pursued the UFOs visually and via radar, but the targets never remained stationary long enough for the pilots to get close. The strange aircraft moved with incredible speed and agility, and appeared to be able to disappear at will. One pilot, Lieutenant William Patterson, couldn't get close to the aircraft, even while traveling at maximum speed. Knowing he'd never be able to catch them, he slowed down. Then, an unnatural light suddenly flooded his cabin. Several UFOs surrounded his plane. Squinting against the brightness, Patterson kept his jets steady and radioed his handlers on the ground for instructions. But the military air traffic controllers were just as flabbergasted as Patterson. They had no idea what to do. Patterson reached out again, panic rising. Operators on the ground advised him to simply stay put. The lights continued circling. Patterson had no idea if they were examining him or planning an attack. But after several nerve-wracking moments, the UFOs darted away from Patterson's plane. By the time the sun rose over DC, the UFOs were gone. The following Monday, July 28, 1952, the media spread the story across the nation. Everyone, the press, the public, even the president, was hungry for information. But the problem was, Air Force intelligence didn't have any answers, so they reverted to their usual PR stance. Minimize the issue and stall. 
That Tuesday afternoon, Air Force Director of Intelligence, Major General John Samford, addressed a pack of reporters. Samford responded to every question by masterfully obfuscating, avoiding, and rambling off topic. He tried to downplay the events by suggesting operator errors and technology failures caused the radar activity. One possible explanation he offered was temperature inversion. This relied on the idea that a hot atmospheric layer under a colder layer of air could create visual illusions or even scramble a radar signal and make it read grounded objects as aerial targets. Samford knew that the temperature theory didn't hold any water. The truth was, the UFOs were still considered unexplained by the Air Force. The radar technicians at National Airport were far too experienced to make such amateur mistakes. So, to not back himself into a corner, he backpedaled a bit, saying, I think that the highest probability is that these are phenomena associated with intellectual and scientific interests that we are on the road to learn more about. By the end of the press conference, pressure was mounting. Soon, President Truman turned his attention to UFOs. He ordered a different agency to get involved. If the Air Force couldn't find the answers, then the CIA would have to step in. Coming up, UFO mania reaches the highest echelons of government. Now, back to the story. In July 1952, dozens of people witnessed UFOs flying above the Washington, D.C. area. Many of them were trained pilots, air traffic controllers, and radar technicians. The press and the public wanted answers, but Air Force intelligence dodged questions. Truth was, they didn't know what was soaring above the nation's capital. But there was one person they couldn't sidestep. President Harry S. Truman. As soon as the White House expressed interest in UFOs, Project Blue Book moved with a new level of urgency. And Truman wanted the CIA to weigh in. So Captain Edward Ruppelt and his team needed to give the best briefing of their lives. Gaining support from the president could mean a bigger budget and less red tape for their work. If they squandered this opportunity, it could spell the end of UFO research and their careers. The CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence gathered a panel of academic experts to review UFO data as Project Blue Book frantically organized the research they collected over the past year and a half. In fall of 1952, Ruppelt and his team delivered their official briefing to the esteemed group of scientists led by Assistant Director of the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Dr. H. Marshall Chadwell. The research must have been compelling because the panel responded with urgency. Chadwell declared that recent UFO sightings were not attributable to natural phenomenon or known types of aerial vehicles. He recommended that they create another formalized scientific panel to review a more extensive swath of data. He likely hoped this new reviewing body would motivate the highest levels of intelligence and defense to support more UFO research. In other words, 
This group of professional skeptics had been convinced that UFOs could be from another planet and that our government needed to do something about it. It appeared that UFOs were finally going to get the high-ranking attention that Ruppelt and his team thought they deserved. But they didn't revel in this victory for long. They faced another more significant hurdle, a bigger scientific panel with higher stakes. In early January 1953, Ruppelt began briefing this new panel of experts with all of Project Blue Book's research. On January 12, 1953, the panel gathered for the first day of meetings in which they would make their final decision about UFOs. CIA consultant and renowned physicist Howard P. Robertson led the group, which became known as the Robertson Panel. The rest of the group was made up of high-ranking physicists, radar specialists, astronautical researchers, and one of the inventors of the hydrogen bomb. On the first day, they all quieted as Ruppelt and his team entered the room and handed out copies of their reports and photographs. They also rolled in a movie projector to show the group a few UFOs caught on film. Ruppelt started with an overview. Since 1947, UFO researchers at Air Force Intelligence had evaluated 1,593 UFO sightings. He explained that the staff weeded out reports that weren't credible, but also acknowledged that there were undoubtedly useful sightings that never got reported. The team claimed that since Kenneth Arnold first spotted a flying saucer over Mount Rainier in 1947, witnesses had seen about 44,000 UFOs across the country. The Air Force estimated that they only received reports from about 10% of them. Of the credible reports they had received, Project Blue Book could explain the majority. About 19% of sightings turned out to be balloons, 12% were normal aircraft, and 14% were other common flying objects, like birds, clouds, even trash being blown in the wind. 429 of the sightings, about 27%, were considered unknown. Of these cases, Ruppelt and his team found that witnesses most often reported seeing an oval-shaped white or metallic aircraft. Sightings occurred at all times of day and night, and the UFOs traveled in every direction. But speed estimates varied widely. Observers clocked some aircraft traveling at a mind-boggling 50,000 miles per hour, though a range of 700 to 800 miles per hour was more common. The vast majority of the unknown sightings, 70%, occurred from the air, made by experienced aviators. These witnesses also tend to provide the most visual and technical detail. Pilots in the air were physically closer to UFOs and had tools like radar to use as proof. Besides speed, Ruppelt highlighted two additional statistical quirks from their data. Ever since the first flying saucer sighting in the summer of 1947, reports peaked around July every year, and again around Christmas. In July 1952, when UFOs overran the D.C. area, Project Blue Book received their highest recorded number of sightings in a single month, 536. 
Project Blue Book staff compared the ebb and flow of UFO reports against dozens of other factors, tides, atomic tests, the solar system's position, how cloudy the skies were at the time. Nothing could explain why July was consistently the busiest month for UFOs. It also seemed that UFOs were most likely to show up above industrial sites. Places like nuclear power plants, ports, and factories produced more reports than other locales. Regions with large populations but little industry generated far fewer sightings. Although Ruppel didn't make a conclusion based on this data, the subtext was clear. UFOs targeted areas where they could best discern American technical prowess or do the most damage to it. Ruppelt didn't present any of his own theories or those of his team. He knew his role was to provide the available facts and allow the panel to form their own conclusions. Instead, he gave the history of UFO sightings, including accounts from the late 1800s. Ruppelt also went through previous military explanations for UFOs and had to tread carefully with the theory that UFOs were either Soviets or heavily classified American technology. But according to him, he didn't have to work hard to dissuade the panel away from these explanations. Ruppelt wrote later, no one at the meeting gave a second thought to the possibility that UFOs might be a super-secret U.S. aircraft or a Soviet development. Elite scientists with the highest levels of security clearance made up the panel. They knew how impossible it would be for another country to generate technology that so far outstripped American aeronautics. They also knew the incredible budget dedicated to military research and development. If UFOs were top-secret American aircraft, the government wouldn't currently be spending billions of dollars on other less advanced technology. After five days of intensive presentations and fielding questions from the experts, Project Blue Book ceded control. The future of UFO study was now in the hands of the Robertson panel. Ruppelt worried that the panel would reject the possibility that UFOs were extraterrestrial and possibly even recommend the closure of Project Blue Book. His concerns were only partially right. After two days of debate amongst themselves, the Robertson panel wrote out their findings. In this document, according to Edward Ruppelt's book, the panel said they didn't feel that any of the UFO reports indicated extraterrestrial origins. However, they didn't rule anything out. The group went out of their way to state that intelligent life on other planets and the ability for that life to travel to Earth was within the realm of possibility. Considering that military leadership had vehemently denied that possibility in the past, Ruppelt considered the ruling a step forward. But perhaps most importantly, in Ruppelt's account, the experts recommended expanding Project Blue Book. They wanted it quadrupled in staff and budget. They decided there wasn't enough data to draw a clear conclusion, but with more resources, they believe there could be. In addition, Ruppelt claimed that the Robertson panel advised that all UFO research be declassified and turned over to the American public. They wanted to demystify UFOs. 
They also knew that public attention would help hold UFO studies accountable to the truth. It all seemed promising to Ruppelt, like steps in the right direction. But something, somewhere, changed. Initially, Ruppelt claims that the Pentagon signaled that they intended to follow through on the Robertson panel's recommendations. But when it came time to actually put them into practice, they balked. Project Blue Book wanted to release one of the sightings they'd caught on film to the public. Ruppelt also drafted a press release to accompany it. But he says the Pentagon blocked their efforts at the last minute and hastily instituted a new PR policy, which essentially boiled down to, don't say anything. Throughout the first half of 1953, Ruppelt says that he tried and failed to add more members to his team. He claimed he hadn't received any explicit revision to his orders since the Robertson panel, but the study's agenda had clearly changed. Instead of sharing information from the UFO investigation with the public, the Pentagon allegedly returned to their old ways, denial and secrecy. The glimmer of hope that the Robertson panel once offered Ruppelt and Project Blue Book faded and died. Even respected scientists, hand-picked by the CIA, didn't have the power to change top military officials' opinions on the origins of UFOs. Before the end of the year, Ruppelt left Project Blue Book and soon retired from the military. Project Blue Book remained officially active between 1953 and 1969, but its responsibilities decreased. Eventually, it was basically used to manage public perceptions of UFOs, often by silencing witnesses and downplaying public sightings. Naturally, when the CIA declassified the final Robertson panel report in 1975, its contents told a very different story than Ruppelt expected. According to the declassified report, the panel had concluded, quote, there is no evidence that the phenomena indicate a need for the revision of current scientific concepts. The report also recommended the national security agencies systematically debunk UFOs and educate the public about the lack of evidence supporting their existence. The report didn't mention the expansion of Project Blue Book at all. In fact, based on the Robertson panel's conclusions, the CIA decided no further UFO study was necessary. They continued only to monitor sightings that might pose a threat to national security. It seemed that more than anything, the Robertson panel resulted in a transfer of power. The Air Force and special groups like Blue Book no longer needed to handle UFO investigations. They now took place behind doors with much higher security clearance, under CIA control. If we believe Ruppelt's account, rather than the declassified report, then this outcome followed the same patterns of the past. Ever since the start of Air Force UFO studies in 1947, certain scientists interpreting the data had maintained that it's possible, likely even, that UFOs are not from this planet. And just as consistently, it seems the top military officials resisted that message. 
For modern UFO enthusiasts, the opaque and sometimes nonsensical governmental response to UFOs can only mean one thing. The government knows more about UFOs than they are letting on. A lot more. What are they hiding? Well, we'll find out what UFO research looks like today, next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with the final episode on the relationship between UFOs and the United States Air Force. For more information on Project Sign, amongst the many sources we used, we found Thomas Tulin's book, History of the United States Air Force UFO Programs, and Edward Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Fact. Fiction. Fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from ParCast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.